This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Jennifer Ackerman on her book, The Genius of Birds. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with Amy Mullins. It's my absolute pleasure to have with me in the studio now Jennifer Ackerman, who is a science writer and author, and she's written a book called The Genius of Birds. It's out via Scribe Publishing in Australia, and Jennifer is here for the Melbourne Writers' Festival, among other things. Hi, Jennifer, and thanks for joining me. Hi, a great pleasure to be here. It's lovely to have you. Now, I know um, that you are very passionate about birds, and it comes through in this book because it's just almost an ode to birds and their their great genius. First of all, talking about birds and how they've evolved, I was really interested in the fact that humans and birds have evolved separately but kind of in parallel and that they really have a very a long history. Our last common ancestor occurred 300 million years ago, but there are still similarities that we have with birds, and one of them is some of our cognitive abilities. So first of all, I want to talk about, I guess, your passion for birds and, and where that came from, and then we'll move into some of the content around um, individual species of birds and the difference between genius and intelligence. So Jennifer, how did you come to write about birds and become so passionate about them? Well, I've been um, bird watching since I was a child. Um, I grew up in a family of five girls. My father was a bird watcher. And um, the only way to spend time alone with my dad was to go out in the woods with him and watch birds. So uh, from the age of about eight or nine, I um, I was out there uh, looking at birds, um, figuring out, trying to figure out what they were. And um, so it's it's been a passion for a very long time. And you know, I've always thought that birds were very resourceful creatures, but it's really been in the past um, 10 or 15 years that um, the scientific studies have come out suggesting that birds are far more intelligent than we ever imagined. There was, you know, Betty the crow that could bend a hook and um, uh, use it as a tool to to pull up a little bucket with food at the bottom. Um, There was Alex, the African gray parrot, that um, really proved that um, birds are capable of of a kind of cognition that's on par with primates. Um, Alex was extraordinary in his use of of labels and language for uh, everything from colors and shapes to numbers. He's um, just a fantastically intelligent bird, and he wasn't alone. <laughs> <laughs> and had a good relationship um, with his uh, handler or the yes. scientist involved? Correct. Irene Pepperberg, who's now at Harvard, um, had a, a, a very a fantastic relationship with him. And also with birds, um, uh, African grey parrots. Since then, there's a, a bird she's working with now named Griffin, who is teaching her all kinds of new um, capabilities of, of these really super intelligent birds. Um, so I, I just was fascinated by these new studies coming out and said, okay, I want to leap in here and explore what we've learned. And you know, you mentioned that we've had 300 million years separating our evolution from uh, last from a bird's and last common ancestor was that long ago. But what we've learned is that um, 
birds through through convergent evolution really they they have um, brains that are very different from ours. We thought that it took a um, a, a neocortex with layers of cells to be intelligent. Well, birds have taught us otherwise. Their neurons are arranged in little bulb-like clusters. But the really important thing in intelligence is the connections between neurons. And in that way, birds' brains are very similar to our own. They have some of the very similar pathways. Their um, ways of of song learning are very similar to our ways of of learning languages. Their their, uh, neural pathways they use to recognize faces are very similar to to ours. So there are these um, convergences of cognition, just as you described, that are, are really quite remarkable. Mm. And they have high levels or concentrated levels of neurons in certain areas, don't they? Yes, they do. In the frontal cortex, or the equivalent of the of, of, of our frontal cortex, they, it turns out that some. Um, uh, species in particular, the parrots and the corvids, um, their uh, brains are very dense with neurons. In fact, um, those two groups of birds have um, twice as many neurons in their um, this frontal part of the brain as um, primates do, and four times as many as uh, mammal brains of the same size. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So when we're looking at the brain size of birds, that's often one reason why people have assumed that they didn't have a great deal of cognitive ability. And you talk about brain size in this book and that in particular birds, the similarity between birds and humans is that we do have larger brains uh, relative to our body size. So could you share a bit more about that interesting point? Yes, and and, um, it is, you know, we... (laughs) We have used as, as a as a slur a derogatory remark, you know, you bird brain. But um, it turns out that that um, some birds, anyway, have brains that are surprisingly large for their body size. It is called relative brain size, and it is the similar um, to humans. So, if you look at the, the you know the size of a bird's body, its brain is in fact um, quite large, and this is true for. Uh, corvids like, um, you know, uh, crows, uh, ravens, uh, jays. But it's also true for small birds. Um, one of the birds that's very common in the U.S. is the chickadee, and it has a very large brain for its very tiny body size. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a, a, um, uh, a remarkable feature of their um, their brains. Absolutely. So let's go to the interesting distinction you make in the history that you explore around the concept of intelligence and genius, because you do choose genius for a reason as the the part of the title of this book, The Genius of Birds. It's not the intelligence of birds. Uh, Why did you explore that or choose that as your title? And, And that particular language was important to you. Yes, I think of genius as the ability to know what you're doing in your environment, um, to be able to solve the problems of your environment, um, to figure out uh, whether those problems are environmental problems or they're social problems. You know, we have uh, an environment that's made up of our um, natural habitat, but also of our social habitat. And birds have um, a real genius for solving the problems of their social and environmental worlds. And they've been doing that for a very long period of time. So 
So that's the, the, the definition that I use of genius, this, um, this ability to know what you're doing within your environment. Um, and, you know, the, the book is, is also, it's about intelligence, which is the ability to solve problems using um, cognitive skills rather than instinct. And that is something that uh, many birds have shown us they can do. They have, and it, you share that research throughout the book, and it's really interesting to look at some of the particular case studies that you utilise. One of them, which is um, fascinating and I had no idea about, was the New Caledonian crow. New Caledonia isn't really that far from here, and uh, I note that in your book you mentioned that New Caledonia is actually the geological offspring of an ancient supercontinent called Gondwana land. <laughs> so, we, technically, we may have some you know relation to um, the birds that are there and the at least that ecosystem, which clearly it's evolved since then. But uh, it was fascinating to even hear that we had some connection to New Caledonia. This new Caledonian crow, though, obviously it's part of the corvid family, which you highlight as being a very intelligent and excellent family or grouping of birds in itself. But this particular crow stands out for a reason. Could you share with us what makes it so special? Yes. Yeah, so um, the, the new Caledonian crow is a superb problem solver. Um, a few years ago, there was a, a YouTube that went viral. I think the BBC produced a program showing a new Caledonian crow solving an eight-stage puzzle. It had There was a little bit of food at the end of it. But this bird had to solve the pieces of the puzzle in the proper order in order to get that piece of meat. So they the bird used uses one tool to get another tool to get another tool that will finally work to actually get that piece of meat at the end. And the bird solves this eight-stage puzzle in about two minutes. And it has seen the individual elements of the puzzle, but never in that particular order. So the the problem-solving skills are really remarkable. And this ability to use one tool to get another tool, it's called meta-tool use, and it's only been seen in humans and great apes and this bird. <laughs> so it's a, it's a terrific problem-solver. It's also renowned primarily for its ability to make and use its own tools. Very sophisticated tools. Um, it's the only species other than humans to make the hook tool. And it's a stick with a little hook on the end that the bird uses to fish out grubs from um, from a log or, or a, the base of a plant. And um, it also makes these, these kinds of hook tools from a, a plant called the pandanus plant, which has little barbs along the edges. And the remarkable thing about these pandanus tools is that there are different styles of pandanus tool making in different parts of the island. And that suggests that there's actually um, transmission of tool design over generations, which is a very good definition of culture. So they're not only evolving the, the tool or the way that it's created, but then, um, yes, yeah, sharing it, learning it from each other. Right. One of the um, interesting parts about that that I found um, particularly revealing in the context of your book is that you say sometimes it's hard to adequately measure cognitive ability in a laboratory setting because there are so many variables. But in this particular case, the New Caledonian crow is doing this in the wild without any prompting from humans. This is just something that they actually do. 
Yes, absolutely. And it was a scientist at University of Auckland, Gavin Hunt, who discovered this. He was actually studying another bird, the kagu, uh, which is a um, it's a rare bird. It's it's a ground dwelling bird. Doesn't do very much. And um, while he was out there looking at the kagu, uh, he noticed the crows that were carrying these sticks. And a, when a crow makes a uh, New Caledonian crow makes a very good tool, it will keep it and reuse it, so it carries it in its um, foot from place to place. He noticed this, and then he noticed them making the tools from these pandanus leaves. And he did a remarkable thing, which was to look at the negative impression that the um, that's left on these pandanus leaves when the, the crow is finished making them. And that's how he determined that there were different styles of tool making in different, uh, different parts of the island. Right. And I was also interested to hear that although they don't have as many varieties of tools as chimps or orangutans, they make them with absolute precision and specifically for different tasks in terms of the size and how it's bent and everything like that. That's correct. And they, um, when they craft a tool from a pandanus leaf, it, it, it requires a very methodical system of cuts and tears in the leaf. And they do that um, all ahead of time. So, And then they remove the whole tool from the leaf. So it's clear that they have some image of what the tool needs to be. They're not just pulling it off and then tearing it, but they're actually crafting the tool while it's still on the leaf. And that does suggest that they have this mental template of the tool in their heads before they start to make it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the factors which you raise as to why um, the New Caledonian crow might be so super intelligent or a, a true genius is that the environment that it's in is very unique. Obviously, in New Caledonia, um, there's a great level of biodiversity that's unique to that particular island, but also that uh, they have an upbringing that's prolonged as a child, so they can um, be with their parents for longer. And then the other aspect you talk about is that there's only modest threats from competitors and predators. Could you share more about that particular environment that they're operating in? Right. So the big question is, you know, why are these crows so special? And um, their scientists are looking at the genomes of the birds and comparing them with um, similar crows. But one of the focuses has been on the environment. And um, like most islands, New Caledonia is very unique and there are um, limited numbers of predators. And this does allow a young bird to... um, accompany its parent and noodle around with tools, you know, poke around on the ground without the threat of, you know, a goshawk or something coming in and taking them away. Um, So they have these very long juvenile periods. And um, that is definitely a factor that's usually associated with intelligence is a long um, juvenile period. So these birds do have that. And it takes about a year and a half for a young bird to learn how to make and use its own very sophisticated tools, and it makes a lot of mistakes along the way, but its parent is there to feed it when it uh, can't get the mm. food itself. And uh, so this is this is thought to be one of the reasons. Um, the bird also has a very uh, unique um, bill uh, and visual system that allows it to to see the tools that it's um, that it's making, and, and that's not true for for other crows. So that's a, a unique facet of the bird as well. Right. And in terms of birds within the corvid family, other types, 
what are some of the examples that you that you draw upon that you think are interesting? But obviously, we you know, New Caledonian crow seems like the height of intelligence, but there are clearly other intelligent corvids around. There definitely are. I mean, but a couple of my favorite examples are the the Clark's Nutcracker, which is a bird that lives in the um, western mountains of the U.S. And this bird has a remarkable ability to remember where it put things. So it um, is a caching species, and it um, so it hides its food for future use. And it can hide um, 30,000 seeds scattered over dozens of square miles in thousands of different caches, and remember where it put its individual caches months later, even though the landscape may have changed from, you know, shifting soil, rock, snow, this bird goes to the location of its individual stashes and retrieves them. So remarkable um, spatial memory in in that species. Um, Another bird, the, the western scrub jay, also a corvid, it can remember not only uh, where it buried its food, but what it buried and when it buried it. So it um, caches different kinds of foods like uh, insects, nuts, um, worms. Some of them are perishable, some are not. And it remembers what it buried when so that it can retrieve first those foods that are most perishable. Mm. And you term that mental time travel, the ability to travel back in one's mind, which is really something that you know we assume is unique to humans. That's we did think it was unique to humans, but this bird is is questioning that uh, that assumption. It's fabulous. It's great to think outside ourselves and realize we're not that special sometimes. And also, there's another bird that gets. It's often maligned. Even here in Melbourne, uh, they get a tough time and um, they're generally found on the street. And I mean, I've seen them, many of them disabled, one leg not there. Uh, pigeons get the worst time and the worst treatment, but they do have um, some significant capacity for navigation. Yes, they have a capacity for navigation. I, I also want to just say, um, yeah. I, I grew very fond of pigeons while researching this book. Um, they're really, you know, the expression "you pigeon brain" could be considered something of a compliment because they they have a, a, an extraordinary visual memory. So they can learn and recall um, up to a thousand images, um, and they store them in long term memory for at least a year. And they can discriminate between um, different letters of the alphabet, different human faces. Um, they're really very adept at this this um, visual discrimination. And then they have this amazing capacity to navigate, um, to get to places they've never been before. And um, this is a, a really remarkable phenomenon. And scientists think that... Um, Pigeons and other birds navigate using a map and compass system. Um, so it's kind of a collection of cognitive tools that are the natural equivalent of our GPS, our satellite navigation, our compasses. But all these things are, are uh, wired into the bird's brain. Mm. And they use different kinds of information um, from sun and stars, from magnetic fields, uh, landscape features, wind sound, even smell. And all of this information is funneled into their brains and then used to guide them to their destination. One of the um, uh, uh, quick story I want to tell yeah, you about uh, about navigation is not in the pigeon, but in a small bird called the white-crowned sparrow, which um, uh, migrates in uh, the U.S. from Canada south to Mexico. 
along the West Coast. And the, st- the story I like to tell about the, the extraordinary navigational abilities of these birds is scientists um, uh, captured uh, 30 birds total, I think 15 adults, 15 juveniles, when they were on their migratory path southward. And they um, put them in a crate, and they loaded them onto an aircraft, and they flew them uh, more than 2,000 miles across the country to Princeton, New Jersey. And then they released the birds there to see what they would do. Well, those birds, the adults and the juveniles, found their way back to um, directly head to their wintering grounds in Mexico. So even though they had no idea where they were, they were released within hours. They were they were beelining back to their uh, to their uh, the location they were headed for. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So, talking more about different kinds of birds and their unique skills. I know some people will be able to relate uh, certainly in coastal areas here but obviously I I think it may even occur in the city where there are these birds is the cockatoo and its unique annoying ability to some to be able to open bins (laughs) and also well apparently they can pick locks. Yes, they can. They're, they're, I think cockatoos are extraordinarily um, uh, intelligent birds, both in terms of this um, the, the ability to solve physical problems, but they're also very socially sophisticated. And social intelligence is, is highly developed in birds. And in birds that flock like cockatoos, um, you know, they have a very complex social world and they um they have developed some very sophisticated social skills to navigate that world yeah and what do you think it is that makes them so curious or determined to you know defy forces of gravity which is a bin lid you know a heavy bin lid people actually have to put chains over the top of them something to weigh it down and even then they can be quite clever yeah it's true and it's it's uh it's uh, not just cockatoos. We have ravens in uh, Alaska that do the same thing. They'll lift up a, a you know a huge dumpster lid, and um, to get to and then work together to do it. Right, uh, which is <laughs> <laughs> I think a remarkable thing. Yeah, that is amazing. So. One of the things that strikes people about birds is that group dynamic as well as just the individual. And so you talk in your book about flocking behaviour and how that happens and how they communicate with each other. Could you share a bit more about that? Yes, so flocking is a very interesting phenomenon because um, you look at it and it looks like those birds are moving as one organism. You know, it's this tremendous unity of movement. And it was thought at one time that there was some kind of thought transference going on. Um, And that turns out not to be the case. What really um, is happening in uh, flocking behavior is that each bird is paying attention to the movement and direction of the six or seven birds around it and responding to those signals. And what we see is this beautiful sort of curtain of movement, but it is actually emerging, this complex behavior is emerging from um, birds following a few simple uh, rules. 
Yeah, in that regard, they look a bit smarter than they are. (laughs) But doing something really phenomenal that we still can't do ourselves. Exactly. It's really interesting. And that's one of the tensions that's in this book. And you are very measured and even-handed about this, is that you're not trying to overstate what some birds can do. And just because they're really... uh, have genius or cognitive ability in one area doesn't necessarily mean that you're saying they're a genius in general in every area. In terms of your research and looking at these different birds, what formed your view as to how you could look at genius? Because you do uh, mention a scientist, Louis Lefebvre, and he talks about um, general cognition and that as being something that's um, important and relevant to birds. What's your view on that? Well, so there is a divide in the scientific world between people that think that um, the intelligence of birds is what they call modular, that it's very um, limited to a particular area and that the bird has evolved intelligence in that area. And then there's the school um, that Louis is a part of that feels that there's a there's something called a general cognition and that birds that are intelligent in one area are often intelligent in another. And I think the world is moving um, toward Louis' direction. Um, and, and I think that that's probably true. You know, we are still in um, the kind of infant stages of being able to measure bird cognition to understand intelligences that are unlike our own. And so I think we have a, um, a, a tendency to underestimate uh birds in different areas and to not know how to measure their particular abilities. So we're just beginning to learn how to do that. One of the interesting things that Louis did was um, to invent a scale of intelligence um, to measure intelligence in the wild, in the bird world. And um, he did that by looking at examples of um, innovative behavior in birds And he went back through, I don't know, 75 years worth of journals looking for these reports of of unusual, innovative, inventive behavior in birds. And then he divided those by family and he came up with a a scale based on this um, capacity in the wild to do new things in response to um, challenging situations. And I think that's actually a a, a quite... uh, a reliable measure of of intelligence. Yeah, it's a really interesting approach. It's kind of like a meta-analysis of of reports on birds. Exactly. And you do say that he came up with more than 2,300 examples from hundreds of different species, so it's quite a rigorous sample there. It is, and um, and the the um, the scale that he developed is is um, is turning out to be quite accurate in many ways. So um, you know, it's not surprising that the corvids and and parrots at the top of the scale, but there are also um, surprises: herons, um, kingfishers, uh, and smaller birds like sparrows, tits, finches that are um, really capable of this very inventive and um, uh, innovative behaviour. And also, you mentioned those that are on the lower end of the scale, such as quails, ostriches, 
turkeys and night jars, but there's also an Australian bird that is not as intelligent as we might think, or at least Australians being the patriotic people that we are would think our uh, our official bird on the coat of arms might be smart. But um, there's a funny story that you recount about, about Louis talking about birds and when he was asked about the, the least clever bird, he, uh, he mentioned the emu. Could you share with us a bit more about that? <laughs> yeah, he was on a radio program that so this this um, when this paper came out, there was a lot of, of interest from the press in it. You know, here you had your first scale of intelligence for birds, and and um, you know, Louis was asked what birds were at the top, and he said, you know, the crows and the ravens, the jays, the parrots, and what was the bird at the bottom? And he said, the emu. And um, when this was announced in the Sydney papers, it really did create kind of an uproar. <laughs> he got a lot of nasty mail. <laughs> and, and you write, the headline read, Canadian researcher named National Bird of Australia, World's Most Stupid Bird. <laughs> I, I was struck. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that yeah. I think in the emu's defence... Mm. Um, the, the the studies recently suggest that that uh, emu ba- brains actually have um, a, a, a density of neurons that's um, that it's equivalent to many mammal brains. So, you know, we're as I said, we're just mm. beginning to understand how to measure bird intelligence. So the emu may have aspects of intelligence that we're just not capable of measuring. Yeah, at this point. we can't identify. Right, and that's interesting also because. It's relative within the bird family. So you're saying there that they are comparable with some other mammals. So, you know, right? they may be smarter than other mammals. Yes. <laughs> or at least some of them. Yes. Yeah. And it did strike me that you, you were talking about um, the emu in part of the emblem and that it reflected... Uh, like the reason why it was chosen was because it was about forward movement in Australia progressing and not going backward and that we were actually uh, a little bit unaware that kangaroos and emus can move backwards. <laughs> it's really quite funny. Yes. Um, but, yeah, that's. I think we might need to correct the history there and do something about it. I'm not sure the emu will get removed, though. Uh, so... Looking at at some of the other elements of this book, you do visit Louis in Barbados and there are a range of uh, birds there that he finds really useful to study in the wild because you say they're very tame, so... Or, some of them are very tame. There are others that are particularly shy. And I was really interested in that contrast that you draw between two particular types of birds that he uses um, as a comparison point and the, the kind of really differing personalities that they have because within genius and this intelligence, these birds seem to have personalities, different types of ways of behaving that indicate a a different type of personality. Absolutely. And so what what Louis has discovered in Barbados, so first of all, it's, a, it's not a place with a lot of species. Um, so if you're a birder, it's not a great place to tick off your you know species Back on your life list. Yeah. But, the, but, but Louis loves it because the birds are relatively tame and easy to observe. So he he likes to um, to work with the carob grackles on his uh, deck that he just puts out water and they'll come and breadcrumbs and they'll come and, and dunk the breadcrumbs to soften them. And um, But the, the pair of birds that he um, has sort of created an, uh, basically a natural experiment 
are the um, Barbados bullfinch, which is a very clever bird, and it's notorious on the island for being able to open these very tricky packages. It's um, uh, the sugar packages on uh, you know the tables in a restaurant and uh, packages of bread on your kitchen counter. Um, it has a, um, a a kind of paired species called the black-faced grassquit, which is um, 99% similar in terms of genetics, but it's absolutely on the opposite end of the scale in terms of apparent intelligence and um, boldness. So the, the bullfinch is a very bold bird, uh, very innovative, very clever. The grass quit really does just one thing, and that's peck at seeds in, in, <laughs> in a lawn somewhere. And so yeah. Louise said, how is it that birds that are so similar genetically, they share the same environment, um, the same kind of um, environmental challenges, how can they be so different? And it's one of the um, one of the great puzzles. Though you know, he's beginning to investigate uh, what's going on in their brains and giving them cognitive tests in the laboratory and trying to tease apart what might be the differences between these uh, these two birds. I think I recall um, reading that those particular birds that were they seemed less intelligent, although they couldn't pick up a skill or learn a task really quickly, that once they had mastered it, they did it better than the other birds? Yes, exactly. So they're, they're less bold, less willing to try new things, but they were actually more accurate in the end um, in completing those tasks. So it's kind of slow and steady is a different strategy than the bullfinches, you know, quick fix and, 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 you know, get to my food as quickly as I can. Yeah. And that really highlights the issue of a laboratory setting, doesn't it? Because often it is involved with, well, how fast can they do something or pick something up? And that's a sign of, of genius or intelligence. Yes, it's really a question of what you're measuring. Are you measuring a bird's ability to solve problems or are you measuring its personality, its boldness? And in terms of Lefebvre and, and his work and the IQ scale, do you think that that this idea of a bird IQ um, will gain momentum and potentially start challenging some of our cultural assumptions around birds because this book is really has a hugely strong case for us to be changing the language we use around birds and also our assumptions and and the many um, derogatory references that have just been part of our everyday assumption around birds. I mean, how can we change that? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that Louis has shown is that birds have what's called behavioral flexibility. They have the ability to do something new in a situation that um, presents a challenge. And that is um, really a very good definition of intelligence. And I think one of my aims in this book was to... um, encourage people to see the birds around them in a new way to see them as the you know innovative creative intelligent creatures that they are and you know to observe them one of my my um favorite comments by a reader was that he, he said that that uh reading this book was like getting a new pair of binoc- magical binoculars mm-hmm. it um it changed the way that he sees birds and the way that he um interprets their behavior. So um, it, 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 that, that is the hope for the book, yeah. um, that it will change the way that, that people uh, view birds. 
Yeah, there's a rationale behind that, or at least a way to understand that perhaps why humans have made many assumptions is that, I mean, birds don't have facial expressions and they do have beady eyes and we can make many assumptions just looking at them um, as to how they would behave and, and what's really happening there. Right, and it's just because it's so different from the way that we conduct ourselves that, um, you know, we, we make assumptions about that, you know, birds are dinosaurs and we assumed, well, that means that they're probably, you know, stupid the way that dinosaurs were stupid. Well, yeah. all of that is being turned on its head now. And uh, and we understand that there is definitely more than one way to wire a clever brain. Mm. I want to close out this discussion talking about something we were, we were discussing off air because I found it so fascinating and I wanted to share it with everyone else. You are here uh, in Victoria and you've been travelling around Australia meeting with different scientists as well, which is just wonderful to hear. And um, you mentioned that you were going to go to Tulangi State Forest and that, well, obviously um, any listeners might know that's one of my favourite places and uh, we spoke about that only a few weeks ago, um, talking about the mountain ash forests in uh, or trees, old growth trees in Tulangi State Forest. But uh, I did play at the end of that interview a clip of bird sounds, which I just showed you uh, earlier and you were talking about the different kinds of birds that habitate in Tulangi Forest and I found it really beautiful when I was there because they felt like they were just all surrounding you like it was just you're in this theatre but you couldn't actually see where the sounds were coming from and they were so different but beautiful and you identified a couple of birds or one bird there that can mimic sounds really brilliantly could you share more about that yes that's the the superb lyre bird which is just a a, a fabulous mimic and it uh when I was listening to your recording, I heard um, a call and I said, oh, that's a whip bird. And then I said, oh, no, I think actually that's a lyre bird imitating a whip bird. Yeah. And, and these birds are such um, accurate and accomplished mimics that they can actually fool the experts, the, 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 the birds who, whom they're mimicking, so that a whip bird might hear a lyre bird and assume that it's a bird of its own species. This is a remarkable thing. It's like um, a it's like learning another language, but many languages. And and lyre birds have, have really mastered mimicry, I think, probably better than any bird in the world. Because, I mean, when they're mimicking that sound, they're mimicking a language. Do they know that what language they're speaking when they're mimicking it? Oh, such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it's one, yeah. of the, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is the... Uh, and I will say that, you know, it's the male birds that are known for their mimicry, but the, the females are also uh, superb mimics. So um, that's, female bird song is, is now being recognized um, as, you know, a very important um, uh, aspect of, of bird vocalization. Right. And in terms of bird song, mm -hmm. um, there are so many different sounds in each species. How has that occurred? Like, why do birds have so many different sounds? Well, that's a very good question, and one of the things that I'm investigating is these um, the range of vocalizations in birds and why they occur. Um, there are not just a variety of songs, but but uh, a number of birds have different dialects. Um, you know that they they're within regions, and what is going on there, and why do birds form dialects the way that we form? Mm -hmm. You know, local accents, uh, regional accents. It's just fascinating. It is. Do you think magpies would have different dialects? I don't know, um, yeah. but uh, it's a it's a very good question. I love the magpie song. I've 
um, had not heard it until I came to Australia. Yeah, and yeah. it's a very beautiful song. That and the Pied Butcher Bird have just such gorgeous, haunting, melodic songs. They do. And uh, I will play a clip that I, um, well, I recorded the magpie song in Ocean Grove once um, and I was just struck by how happy I thought the magpie sounded. I'm not sure if it was happy, but it just sounded from a human aspect um, that the birds were happy. So uh, I will play that as well to kind of illustrate our discussion. But thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming in. It was just an absolute delight to hear from you. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. And that was my interview with Jennifer Ackerman, who is a science writer and author, and she has written a book called The Genius of Birds. It's out via Scribe Publications, and uh, Jennifer was in Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers' Festival, and uh, highly recommend checking out The Genius of Birds. Now, as promised, I'm going to play that recording uh, of a very vocal magpie. Um, I was just so surprised by the range of uh, vocalisation that this magpie had and just how, as I said, happy it sounded. So uh, here's my contribution to nature recording. Love it. Uh, What an interesting sound those magpies make. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.